And so as you are grabbing your seat, first, I just want to say thank you so much to the folks that were able to come out yesterday. We had a spring cleanup day here uh, on the campus. We did a lot of work with mulch and shrubbery and trees, and lots of us have the scratches to prove it today. So if you guys see me up here uh, itching my arms and stuff, it's just because I was not smart and I wore a short sleeve uh, t-shirt and lesson learned. I should do more yard work. I think that's what I learned. If I did more yard work at home, then I would have known uh, to not not do that. But thank you so much if you were part of yesterday. Um, really, really big opportunity. Many, many folks here and made our campus here uh, really look beautiful. Well, this morning, we're going to take a brief break Uh, from our Genesis study, and we are going to be in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out. Turn to John chapter 12, and let me just set this up uh, a little bit. So in John chapter 12, we begin uh, the final week of Jesus. For most of us in this room, you might uh, know this week as Holy Week or Passion Week. It's the final week of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion on the cross. And in fact, um, I did a little bit of research this week. Most of our gospels dedicate uh, their time to the final week of Jesus in a big way. Uh, One third of the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark are dedicated to the final week of Jesus. Can you believe that? Like these are not super long books, but it just shows you the importance of this final week of Christ with the amount of time that they dedicate to it with the stories and the things that they share with us. Luke shares a quarter. So one quarter of the gospel of Luke is dedicated to the final week of Christ. And the book that we're in, the book of John, actually dedicates nearly 50% of the book to the final week of Christ. And that's because John, from the very outset, was wanting to show and prove to his readers that Jesus was the Christ, he was the Messiah, he was God, and he did in fact come to die and be the Savior of the world. And he dedicates 50% of this entire gospel to the final week of Christ. So we're going to begin today talking about the triumphal entry in John chapter 12. But before we do, let me pray one more time and then we'll jump into this text and unpack it today. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that what we're going to study this morning, God, is incredibly powerful. God, we thank you for coming to earth. We thank you for living a perfect and sinless life. God, we thank you for your willingness to give your life on our behalf, God. I pray that as we study your word this morning, God, that you would stir our emotions and our affections towards you. I pray that you would remind us of how good you are towards us and just how much you love us. And God, you proved it with what you were willing to give, your own life. And the word says that you'd be willing to die, even death on a cross. And so I pray that as we unpack this text this morning, God, that we would be challenged and we'd be reminded, we'd be moved to worship of you and all you've done for us, God. Show us the intentionality of the cross in this final week of your life, God, and help us to see that it was all so that we could have forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, as I just prayed, I hope that that's something that comes to life for you this morning as we unpack this text, something I was reminded of as I looked at the Passion Week and the triumphal entry of Christ and all this that we're going to see starting in John chapter 12 was, was simply that, the intentionality of God, the intentionality of Christ to accomplish the purposes that God had sent him here to accomplish, and it all culminates in this week. Uh, it, it, it all is going to set the stage right here for, for the final couple days of Jesus. And so, if you guys would, uh, let's just jump in here in uh, John chapter 12 and read verse 1. It really helps us set up the intentionality of Christ. So, in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So this is all uh, with a great purpose here. Jesus has left Jerusalem. He's not been back to Jerusalem uh, in some time now. He's gone about uh, the different cities and villages, uh, sharing uh, the love of Christ with them. He's been healing people. In fact, it says that uh, not too long ago he even raised Lazarus from the dead, but he's been out doing all of this work, and now he is returning back to Jerusalem. And this isn't just coincidental. This is to set up what is about to happen this week. Jesus, it says, six days before Passover returns to Bethany. Bethany is a little less than two miles from uh, Jerusalem proper, and so it's not a very long distance. And so Jesus is coming back to Bethany to set up shop here for the final week of his life. This is Passover week, and so six days before would make it Saturday. So Saturday he shows up in Bethany, and he's hanging out with Lazarus and Lazarus's sisters. In verse 2, it says, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He's calling what she's done into question here. In verse 6, he said, uh, he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus corrects him in verse 7. He says, leave her alone so that she may be kept, or keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So again, all of this with great intentionality is, is moving into the final days of Christ. And one thing that you'll see here is what uh, Mary is actually accomplishing here is preparing Christ's body for burial. If you remember, after Friday and crucifixion on the cross, there's little to no time to prepare Jesus' body completely for burial. And so Mary doesn't necessarily know that here, but all of this is being set up and taken place to prepare Christ for his final week. So he shows up here in Bethany with his friends six days before Passover. It's Saturday. They begin to eat a dinner with him, and Mary anoints his body with this unbelievable, ex unbelievably expensive uh, oil here to which Judas calls her out. And Jesus corrects her and says that... The poor you will always have, but you do not always have me. Now, that's not an indictment against the poor. Jesus wasn't saying that the poor don't matter in this text. Jesus was just simply saying that you may or may not know this, but I'm not going to be with you for very much longer. 
And so just as a reminder to them, as he had told them many, many times that I will go to the cross, I will die, I will be buried, and I will rise again. But for whatever reason, his disciples and all the people around him were just not getting it. It wasn't clicking with them. So let's continue. Look at verse 9. It says, when a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So remember, this is all right before the the, the, uh, Passover feast. Right before Passover. So typically in Jerusalem every year for Passover, several hundred uh, thousands of folks would show up in order to celebrate Passover. But this year is different. This year, most commentators believe that there were somewhere between 2.5 and 2.7 million Jews that descend upon the city this year. And the thing that made this year different was they had Christ. With him. Now, they didn't fully understand yet what he had come to do, but they knew that there was something special about this guy, right? They had been following him around. They had seen the miracles that he'd done. In fact, it even mentions Lazarus. It says they were following Jesus and believing him because of what he had done to Lazarus. And if you are unfamiliar with the Bible, what Jesus had done to Lazarus is Lazarus dies And three days later, Jesus raises him back to life. And now he's walking around, hanging out with people, eating dinner again. And so you know that kind of causes a stir, right? And so because of this, the people are like, okay, we've seen him feed thousands. We've seen him give blind men sight. We've seen him give uh, lame men the ability to walk. We even witnessed this guy bring somebody back to life that hadn't been dead for a couple hours Nobody was going to get credit for this other than God. But this brother had been dead for three days. And so the stir in the city was something really amazing is going on here. There's something unique about this guy. There's something special about this guy. So they begin to descend upon Jerusalem in droves. And this infuriates the Pharisees. You see, they're trying to quietly come up with a way to be able to get rid of Jesus. And the text says, and also Lazarus. Because as long as Lazarus is walking around, he's just a walking testimony to the power of Christ. So let's figure out a way to get rid of both of these guys. But they're going to have a problem on their hands. It's going to be hard to get rid of the most popular guy in town. Especially when 2.7 million people have shown up to see what he's going to do next. Think about that. Put that in perspective. Uh, I believe that when the Royals won the World Series, there was an estimated over one million people uh, downtown celebrating that. And if you've seen pictures of those crowds, it's pretty impressive. But 2.7 million Jews in in the city of Jerusalem in this moment because word was out that this guy, Jesus, was doing some pretty incredible things and something very, very special was going on. Remember, this is Saturday. In verse 12, we pick up with Sunday. It says the next day, this is the triumphal entry, a large, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Remember, all the fanfare is around this guy, and they know, they hear that he is coming into the city today. Verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This is pretty unbelievable. There's a lot of symbolism in here, particularly nationalism here uh, with, the, with the palm branch. And also a, it's also a symbol of victory. 
So, so the Jewish people are excited that Jesus is coming into town. They believe that this is, in fact, their king. And so they begin to get these palm branches and go out into the city to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. So Hosanna in Hebrew is translated, save us, which is actually pretty incredible. We'll come back to that here in a little bit at the conclusion of this story. But the Jews wanted save. They just didn't know what they wanted saved from at this moment or didn't understand what they needed to be saved from. Let me say it that way. That's a little better. What they wanted saved from was the Romans and all the stuff that had been going on in their lives that they didn't like. And so they're, they're exclaiming, Hosanna, or save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This must be our Messiah, right? He's finally here. And then they go on to say, even the king of Israel... If you remember back in John chapter 6, Jesus, after performing some miracles, um, actually has to leave and go away from the people because it says he perceived that they were about to take him by force and make him their king. But he had to go away because his time had not yet come. Well, in this case, it's a little bit different. The final week of Christ, the time has now come for him to introduce himself. And so the people are thinking, he didn't let us make him king before. Maybe he'll let us make him king now. And so that's the context through verse 13. Look at verse 14. It says, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So in in these two verses, in verses 15 and 16... It says that this is Jesus' public declaration. In John chapter 6, the time had not yet come, so he departs because he didn't want to be made king. But in this context, in John chapter 12, Jesus goes ahead and receives it. And in fact, he, he goes ahead and makes a public declaration that I am in fact the Messiah. I am in fact the king. And he, he does it in a way that would fulfill a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. That's where this whole... Uh, Verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. It's very interesting here, though, that Jesus would choose a donkey, and not even just a donkey, but a donkey's colt. So this would be a very young, little donkey, one that had never been ridden before. We find out from the other gospels. But Jesus rides into town on this donkey, not only to fulfill the prophecy that we see in Zechariah, but also to tip his hand at what kind of king he was going to be. You see, Jesus was okay in this moment of them knowing that he was the Messiah. He was okay with them in this moment, knowing that he was, in fact, the king, but he knew that they didn't understand what kind of king he was planning on being. And so when he comes riding into town on a donkey, it's to demonstrate for the people that he is coming in peace and humility, not as a conquering king, but as a suffering king that they will soon find out in a few short days from now. You see, what would have been typical in this moment is if you're riding into town, you would have rode in on what? A horse, right? Every good movie even tells us that. The, the king coming into town rides in on the, on the white 
horse, as the, as the savior of all the people, right? It demonstrates his power. It would demonstrate his authority. He would come in as a, as a conquering king. Remember in the Old Testament when David would come in, even under Saul. It was said that the people would exclaim that, that, that Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands and tens of thousands. So that's the picture of somebody coming into town as a conquering king. That's what you would expect in a celebration like this, but that's not what we get with Jesus. Jesus doesn't come in on a war horse. Jesus comes in on a humble and lowly donkey, and it's to show the people what he is coming for. Verse 17, it says, the crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So here he comes into town on this lowly, humble donkey, but word about him is still going all throughout the city because there's people there that have witnessed what he's capable of doing, and they're telling other people about it, and it is enraging the Pharisees. The Pharisees do not like that people are going after this. It says, see, we're gaining nothing because they're still going. There, there's nothing that we can do to stop people from following this guy. Nothing short of taking his life away. So that's in the context of what they're trying to do this entire week. Let's continue in verse 20 because Jesus continues to demonstrate what kind of king he's going to be. In verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Again, Jesus is not only demonstrating to them that he is going to be a humble king and a servant king and a suffering king by coming into town on a donkey, but now he's even explaining to them in his words his own plan he, he's letting them know that, listen, I'm going to give my life on your behalf. He, he's trying to explain to them that unless a, unless a grain of wheat dies and falls to the ground, it produces no fruit. And he's saying the same thing about his own life. That if I don't go to the cross, if I don't give my own life, it will not produce the fruit that I came to produce. And so he's explaining this to this group of Greeks here. And he's just demonstrating more and more to us as to what kind of king he's going to be and why he's come and what is about to transpire during this life or this week. Excuse me, verse 25. He goes on to not only uh, explain what he come to accomplish, but he also come to, to explain what his kingdom is going to be like. Because he also shares what it's going to be like for those that follow after him. And it's not going to be what the people expect. Look at verse 25. It says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever loses his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus shows us that he's king. He shows us what kind of king he's going to be. And he also shows us what kind of kingdom 
he's come to establish. And it's an upside down kind of kingdom. It's not the kingdom that the Jewish people expected at all. Jesus didn't come to set up shop in this life. Jesus says, listen, I've come to make all of this about eternity. I've come so that you might not have a better life today or a better life now. I've come so that you might have a better life forever. That was the whole goal and the whole purpose. And that is what is setting up the context on this triumphal entry this Sunday, the first day as they begin the, to, to, to think about and celebrate the Passover, Jesus is revealing himself as king, but he also wants them to know just what kind of king he's going to be. So if you think about this for a second, over the course of the week, on Sunday he comes in to the cheers of the people who are screaming Hosanna, which means save us, and declaring that he's Messiah and declaring that he's king and not many days from now, they're going to trade Hosanna for crucify him, crucify. So what I want us to spend the rest of our time on here this morning is talking a little bit about how did that transpire? How do people go from wanting to make Jesus their king to wanting him dead in less than a week? And I would argue this morning from the scriptures, it's because Jesus isn't the king that they wanted. He didn't meet the expectations that they had laid out in their mind. You see, the people, they're okay with feeding Jesus, the one who shows up and gives everybody meals, right? And they're okay with healing Jesus. And they're okay with the Jesus that gives them all the things that they want. And they are okay with the Jesus that does things the way that they want him to do them. But Jesus doesn't show up and do any of those things. In fact, Jesus doesn't really meet any of their expectations. You see, their expectations were that Jesus would show up when the Messiah would come. When the king would reveal himself, he would do what they wanted him to do. And what did they want him to do? They wanted him to ride into town on the war horse, not the donkey. They wanted him to ride into town and stand before Pilate and, and humiliate him and show him and prove, him, prove to him that Rome is no longer in charge. It's not what Jesus does. In fact, I would, I would even dare to say that I, I, I believe that some of the people were disappointed to the point of humiliated. That their king, their Messiah would have the opportunity to stand before Pilate. And instead of putting Pilate in his place. And instead of taking Rome and driving them out of there. And putting the Jews back in charge. Instead of restoring the, the, the politics and the political environment that they wanted. Instead of doing that he stood there silent. Quiet. The Bible tells us as a sheep is silent before his shears. So was the son of God. Before his accusers. He didn't live up to the people's expectations. He didn't do what they wanted him to do. Jesus you're supposed to show up. And you're supposed to do this. And you're supposed to do that. And Jesus shows up and he does almost the exact opposite. I just think about that for a second. I thought about that. You know when you're a kid and you're growing up. And in your mind you're like. Man your dad is like the toughest person you know right. He can take anyone. 
up until you find out that maybe that's not true, right? And that's what's kind of happening in this text, I believe. The people saw Jesus as, as, as the conquering king. I can even imagine them kind of wringing their hands like, here we go. It's about to happen. And later on the week, on Friday, he's going to be standing before Pilate, and they're going to go, here we go. This is it. The time is now. He's about to put him in his place. He's about to do all the things that we've ever imagined he's going to do. And Jesus stands there in silence and then carries his own cross to Calvary. And he's humiliated in front of all the people. And not only is Christ humiliated, but you can't help but think that the Jews were also humiliated in this moment. Because he's not doing what they expected him to do. So that's reason number one why they were able to go from crown him king to crucify him because he wasn't meeting their expectations. The first expectation was he didn't do what they thought he should do. The second reason is Jesus shows up and he doesn't say what they thought he should say. In the same vein, that you, you have to understand here that the Jews expected Jesus to show up, and particularly the Pharisees and, and, and the Sadducees, they expected Jesus, the Messiah, to show up and, and start throwing out attaboys, right? And pats on the back. You guys are doing awesome. I'm proud of you. You're doing exactly what I was hoping that you would do when I showed up. That's what they're expecting, but what they get instead is Jesus that shows up and begins to challenge their very way of life. And he's not throwing out attaboys. In fact, if you follow the course of, of Passion Week, triumphal entry here is on Sunday. All that takes place on Sunday is Jesus goes into the cheers of the, uh, to the cheers of the people. He goes into the temple and he looks around. He says nothing and he quietly returns to Bethany. That's all that happens on Sunday. On Monday, Jesus wakes up and heads back into Jerusalem and he curses the fig tree on the way in for not producing fruit. Symbolic of the nation of Israel and the, and the, the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel. You're not producing what I've called you to do. So he curses the fig tree on the way in. And then what does he do? He goes back to the same temple and they're there exchanging money. Everyone has to go to the temple because it's Passover to purchase a lamb or if you're poor. Remember back when Jesus was dedicated, they could, they could buy two doves, but they, they had to come and pay for these things. And with 2.7 million people from all over the place coming in, there's all kinds of different currencies. So in order to, to exchange their money so they could pay for these things, money changers were in the temple. But they weren't just... Being helpful by changing money, they were, they were skimming off the top. They were, they were hurting the people. And so Jesus goes into the temple, and he doesn't say, good job, everybody. I'm proud of you. I'm, I'm so grateful that you guys are in here doing what you're doing. No, in, in anger and rage, he overturns all the tables. And he tells them that my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And he challenges and runs everybody out of there. And then Tuesday, Tuesday, Jesus spends the entire day, nearly the entire day on Tuesday, talking with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, all the experts in the law. And they would challenge Jesus on all kinds of stuff all day long. And Jesus, if you remember, begins not only to challenge them back, but openly rebuke them. Again, he showed, he's not saying what they expected him to say. 
The Pharisees are waiting for him to go, good job, guys, you're doing great. And instead, what, what does Jesus say to him? You are like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, you are full of dead men's bones. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not setting the example that you're supposed to be setting for the, for the people. So not only does he not do what they expect him to do, not only does he not do or say what they expect him to say, but he doesn't give them what they expect him to give them. See, in the people's minds, once the Messiah came on the scene, man, they, they would never want for anything. In their minds, the kingdom that Jesus came to establish and set up was a kingdom right here on earth. And they knew the stories. He had fed thousands of people. He turned a couple fishes and a couple loaves into meals for thousands. And that's what every day was going to be like. And he had, he had taken people who couldn't see and he gave them sight. And he took people that couldn't walk and he made them walk. And even people that would die, man, he could just raise us back to life. This is going to be incredible. He's going to give us everything we could ever want. Anything our hearts desire, the Messiah is going to give it to us. And we realize in the, in the text that Jesus doesn't show up and he doesn't do any of that either. He doesn't give them anything that they wanted. But what he does is he shows up and he provides for them the one thing that they needed. Even if they didn't fully understand it. Jesus knew that I could give you food every day. And I could make you well. And I could make all your problems go away. But you would still die separated from God and spend an eternity in a place called hell because of your sinful condition. And Christ knows that. The people don't fully understand it. Even the disciples, the text tells us, don't fully understand it at this moment. But God does. And so while we see in this text that Jesus isn't the king that they wanted, we're reminded that he's the very king that they needed. Pretty incredible if you actually go back on Sunday of the week on the triumphal entry of Jesus. He comes riding into town, showing that he's king, but ultimately showing that he is the Messiah. And what the people had missed, again, was this idea between earthly and eternal. Jesus didn't come to establish his kingdom there, but he came to establish an eternal kingdom and it just jumped out to me this week as I'm studying this. Do you know what they were instructed to do on Sunday of Passover? To choose their lamb. Everyone would get their lamb. The sacrificial lamb was chosen on Sunday. And when Jesus comes riding into town, the people are excited because they think that they have their earthly king. But what we know now in hindsight is that what God was demonstrating to them was their lamb had been chosen. The one and only lamb, the final sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice. The one that would change this whole idea of Passover from this point on. And it's just incredible to think about that while all this is going on, they don't even understand what they're celebrating, but they're still celebrating. 
And in the providence of God in this whole moment, he brings his son into town who's about to go to the cross and die. He gives his son the moment that he deserves from these people. They don't even understand it yet, but he still gets the moment that he deserves because of what he's about to do on the cross. And so that's my challenge for us this week as we, as we go about our, our, our routine and we work towards Friday when Jesus gives his life on the cross to be reminded of the intentionality of Christ throughout this entire book and, and, and plan. It's unbelievable to see God's plan come into focus here, but that's exactly what he's doing. The triumphal entry of Jesus Christ wouldn't be fully understood even by his own disciples until after next Sunday. And that's where we are, church. That's how we're able to come together and celebrate these things because we understand and can look back and see what it was that God was doing and see the unbelievable opportunity that we have to have eternal life because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. So that's my challenge to you this morning is to be mindful of that. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been forgiven of your sins and you know without a doubt that you have eternal life, I pray that this week that these passages as you study them, read through the book of John and let it drive you to worship. To drive you to worship and thank Christ for all that he's done on your behalf. For those of you in the room that maybe don't have a relationship with Christ, my challenge is, is for you this week to come to saving faith in Christ. I know it seems so crazy and so simple, but, but Romans tells us it really is as simple as believing that Jesus Christ died for you. And that God raised him from the dead. That's it. It seems so simple and so easy, and it is. And it's offered to every single person as a free gift. So my challenge to you this morning is if you don't know Christ, come talk to us. We would love to be able to... to have a conversation with you about what it means to have a relationship with, with Jesus Christ. The team's going to come and play here in, in a, just a, a moment. Let me pray for us this morning. When I'm done praying, I'm going to ask that you guys would all stand. This is your time. Again, this week, believer in Christ, remember and ponder on all the things that God has done on your behalf because it is a wonderful, beautiful thing. And let me challenge you with something else. Think about who you might invite next week. Bring somebody with you to one of these services. We've got two services offered and planned. We're expecting God to do big things next week, 9.30 or 11. They're both the exact same service. You come to whichever one, but bring somebody with you. If you don't know Christ, come do business this morning. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for a story that many of us in this room have probably heard many, many times, but God, what a powerful reminder of just how much you love us. And God, how intentional you were about bringing us salvation. God, I thank you that you didn't show up and start an earthly kingdom. Because God, if you would have done that, we would all still fall short of your glory. We would all experience death and we would all still go to hell. But God, you knew what we needed more than anything. You knew what we needed more than being delivered from governments. You knew what we needed more than, than just desiring to have stuff. God, you gave us the one thing that we could never accomplish on our own, and that's eternal life. Thank you for this, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.